On Monday, Donald Trump signed an executive order banning federal funding for overseas abortions, reinstating the so-called Mexico City policy originally created by Ronald Reagan. This is terrific news. It should be followed swiftly by ending federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Trump Press Secretary Sean Spicer bluntly stated, quote, he's a pro-life president. He wants to stand up for all Americans, including the unborn. We can certainly hope that Trump's action on Mexico City policy is not a one-off, and it shouldn't be, because here's the truth. More and more Americans are now pro-life. As Guy Benson of townhall.com points out, a new Marist poll shows 83% of Americans agree with Trump's actions here. 52% of Americans want to limit abortion to rare cases. Another 22% want to outlaw abortion after the first trimester. Under 40% of Americans think abortion is morally acceptable, and there is no gender gap on whether abortion is morally wrong, despite what the Women's March organizers would have Americans believe. So, what's changed? Why are so many Americans now pro-life? Because science. Ultrasounds have made it impossible for Americans to deny any longer that abortion does not destroy a human life. Ultrasounds show the reality of fetal development. Heartbeat by week six is a pretty obvious marker. It's no wonder that a reported 78% of pregnant women who see an ultrasound of their child say no to abortion. So naturally, the left wants to end ultrasounds. Planned Parenthood has fought 3D ultrasounds for years. That's the amazing technology that allows you to see your kid's face before birth. As Dr. L. LaCroix of Planned Parenthood recently said, quote, abortion is a hard enough thing for any woman to decide without the torture of seeing the baby on an ultrasound screen. Torture? How about reality? But according to the pro-abortion left, reality must be ignored. Today, The Atlantic ran a bizarre piece by Moira Weigel titled in Orwellian fashion, quote, how the ultrasound pushed the idea that a fetus is a person, which is somewhat like saying how the microscope pushed the idea that cells exist, or how the Hubble telescope pushed the idea that there are stars outside our solar system, or how human eyes pushed the idea that the Atlantic is fully insane. The fetus is a person. An ultrasound is a piece of technology that allows you to see the person. The piece itself is actually even worse. Weigel writes, quote, What is a fetal heartbeat, and why does it matter? Fetal heartbeat measures are based on two assumptions. First, that an ultrasound image has an obvious meaning. Second, that any pregnant woman who sees an ultrasound will recognize this meaning. Science does not bear out either assumption. Well, um... Yeah, it sort of does. Weigel's science denial here is pretty incredible. Having seen repeat ultrasounds of both my children, the fetal development is clear and undeniable. And it is nearly impossible to see such images without recognizing that there's a child in there, not some random clump of cells. Weigel might talk to an OBGYN or two before declaring ultrasounds vague and uninformative. But Weigel goes even further, assuring readers that ultrasounds were primarily a form of warfare against women, rather than a tool allowing doctors to identify problems with fetal development as early as possible. This is a direct quote from her article now. After the war, Army-trained scientists and Army-funded laboratories demobilized the technology, turning away from the ocean toward women's bodies. Ultrasound made it impossible, made it possible for the male doctor to evaluate the fetus without female interference. Yes, really, this is the ultrasound. It's, it's a war on, on women. That's basically the argument. Uh, side note here. Okay, when my second child was born, my first child had a, had a heart issue that got fixed after she was born. Our second child, we actually did an ultrasound of while he was in utero to determine whether he had the same issue. Thank God he didn't. But... That wouldn't have been possible without ultrasound. The left's war for abortion now takes no prisoners. Science itself must be fought tooth and nail if women are to keep killing the babies in their wombs. It's not going to work. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. 
Ah, uh, here we are. And so much to get to. It's going to be an epic episode today of Good Trump, Bad Trump, because finally, 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 Trump's president. So we don't have to speculate any longer about what he's going to do and what he's going to say as president, because now he is. And there is so much to talk about because he's really active, which is great. You know, good for him. He's actually getting to work. He's not he's not futzing around. So that, that's a good thing. And he's doing some things that I like and he's doing some things that I don't. But we'll talk about all of that. First, we have to say thank you to our sponsors over at Legacy Box. So for years, I've been saying to people that it is imperative that if you want to ensure that your family memories are preserved for posterity, you actually have to go preserve them. You have to go put them on a DVD or a thumb drive. You have to make them accessible. You don't want the old tapes just moldering out there in the garage. Well, Legacy Box actually makes that happen in affordable fashion, in safe fashion. They're fantastic. The way that this works is that you load Legacy Box up with all your old tapes and films and pictures and audio recordings, and then you send it back to them. And you get it back in a couple of weeks on a DVD or a thumb drive, ready to watch and share. It's great for anniversaries. It's great for parental for parental birthdays. It's really fantastic. Over a quarter million families have used Legacy Box already, and they make sure that all your stuff stays safe. So you don't have to worry about, oh, are they going to lose it? No, they're not going to lose it. They actually send a, a series of labels, and you slap the labels on the on the actual items, and then they scan them in when they get there so that you can actually see in what stage of development various films and 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 pictures are. So it's a fantastic, fantastic service. You should use it beginning to end, obviously. Legacybox.com slash Ben. You get a 40% discount on your order. Legacybox.com slash Ben. Make sure you use the splash Ben so they know that we sent you. And also so you get that 40% discount. Instead of having those unwieldy boxes of crap up in your attic, now you can just have a DVD that has all of your family memories on it. Um, Makes Things pretty easy. If you got a fire in your house, and instead of you trying to schlep out box after box of old VHS tapes, now you can just grab your computer and run. So that that is a, a safety concern, but it's also a wonderful thing. Legacybox.com slash Ben. Legacybox.com slash Ben. Okay, so finally, Donald Trump gets down to business. Finally, he gets to work. We're putting aside all of the silliness over the, the conflicts with the press. And finally, Donald Trump is doing stuff. So what is Donald Trump doing? Well, yesterday he signed a bunch of executive orders. And now it's time for us to do what we're going to be doing all all administration long. We're going to do some good Trump, bad Trump. And the reason we do this is because it is very important to note when Donald Trump is doing things that are good and note when he is doing things that are bad. There are lots of people who seem to think that because Donald Trump does some good things, that means you should never critique him when he does bad things or wrong things. This is not my perspective. You can make your own judgment on what you think of Trump. You're an adult. Good for you. And I can make my own judgment. But what I certainly can do is I can tell you the things he's doing that are good and the things that he's doing that are bad so you are more informed coming away from the Ben Shapiro show every day. So let's play the theme. Good Trump, bad Trump. Let's do it. Good Trump, bad Trump. Which one will we get today? So there was a plenty of good Trump to go around yesterday. Yes, plenty of good Trump. So Donald Trump, I, I, by the way, I always thought this was going to be the case that Donald Trump's first hundred days were going to be filled with things that I liked. And then I thought he was going to go a little bit off the rails after that. But so far, that prediction is is on track. So Donald Trump started off yesterday, as I mentioned, by signing an executive order reinstating the Mexico City policy, which means that your tax dollars now no longer go to organizations that promote or perform abortions abroad. That's great. That's great. Is it a huge step? It's, I don't think it's an enormous step, but it's a great, important step. Good for Donald Trump on that. Other things that he did yesterday that were quite good. He came out and he said that he was going to cut regulations. He signed an executive order that froze federal hiring in the executive branch, which is, which is quite good. Um, so here is, the, uh, here is a clip of him talking about it. We think we can cut regulations by 75 percent, maybe more, but by 75 percent. Have 
in a certain way, better protections. But when you want to expand your plant, or when Mark wants to come in and build a big, massive plant, or when Dell wants to come in and do something monstrous and special, uh, you're going to have your approvals really fast. Thank okay. you, sir. And, and the one thing that surprised me, and then I want to hear what you have to say, but the one thing that surprised me in going around and meeting with a lot of the people at this table and meeting with a lot of the small business owners, if I gave them a choice of this massive tax decrease that we're giving for business, for everybody but for business, or the cutting down of regulation, if I took a vote, I think I, the regulation wins 100 percent. Now, in one case, it's hard dollars. And the other case, it's regulation. You would think that the regulations would have no chance. It's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. Virtually everybody is happier with regulation than even cutting the taxes. So the regulations are going to be cut massively and the taxes are going to be cut way down. So you're going to have now incentive, incentive to build. Okay, so good for Trump. Good for Trump. This is the kind of stuff that he was elected to do Good for him. So this is another one of his big of his big pitches. Okay, then we get to a little bit of of bad. Well, actually, you know, a little bit more good Trump. And then we'll get to bad Trump. So other good Trump. Trump apparently is now looking to chop down the the Environmental Protection Agency to size. Uh, he apparently has pulled the Center for Disease Control out of some global warming climate change conference. I don't know why the CDC is going to a global warming conference in the first place. Uh, as far as the EPA thing, apparently they've gotten an, an agency action plan for the EPA that they're putting out right now, and it's great. So uh, they're looking at budget reductions. They're looking at $513 million in cuts to state and tribal assistant grants, $193 million in savings from terminating climate programs, $109 million in savings from environment programs and management. They're going to stop the Clean Air Act greenhouse gas regulations. So this is this idiotic notion that Congress somehow gave the executive branch the power to crack down on carbon emissions. It didn't. So he's going to stop that, which is great. He's going to maybe issue an executive order barring the EPA from overruling federal permit decisions unless in clear violation of established law. Also a good thing. And unless major reforms of the agency's use of science and economics are achieved, EPA will be able to return to its bad old ways as soon as the establishment administration takes office. So they want to destroy the EPA's ability to twist science in order to push a leftist agenda. All of this is really, really good stuff. So good for Donald Trump on all of this. This is really excellent. Okay, now it's time for some some bad Trump. So unfortunately, I gave you the, the bad Trump face when I meant the good Trump face. But here's the bad Trump face. Uh, so Donald Trump, here's here's some here's some bad Trump, and this is the stuff that uh, I think is more controversial because it it presages a split in the Republican Party. All the stuff we've talked about so far, there is unanimity among conservatives that this is good stuff. Right, cutting down the EPA to size, cutting down regulations to size, the Mexico City policy. All of this, there's broad consensus among conservatives across the spectrum that this is good and this is smart and this is stuff that we care about. And then we get to the stuff that Donald Trump actually cares about the most. The stuff that Donald Trump actually cares about the most is the trade stuff, right? Because he is a populist nationalist. And that here's the part of the Trump agenda that is helping transform the GOP from a traditionally conservative party based on the Reagan idea of limited government, based on the idea of, of social conservatism, based on the idea of hawkish foreign policy. This is the part of Trump's agenda that really has very little to do with conservatism 
at all. And we start actually with something that I think a lot of Trump's most ardent advocates were pushing him for, but he's apparently now no longer going to do. So apparently Donald Trump, he, he, let's, let's just flash back here for a second. Donald Trump promised, and a lot of Republicans pushed Republican legislators to do this in 2014. Republicans promised they were going to get rid of Barack Obama's executive amnesties, that they were going to reinstate the idea that if you are here illegally, there is the potential for your deportation. Barack Obama signed two executive orders, the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals Program, the Deferred Action on, on Parents of Those Children. Those were his two big executive actions with regard to illegal immigration. And Donald Trump, lest you forget, promised openly throughout the campaign that on day one he was going to get rid of DACA and DAPA. Here was Donald Trump back in September saying exactly that. Cancel unconstitutional executive orders and enforce all immigration laws. We will immediately terminate President Obama's two illegal executive amnesties in which he defied federal law and the Constitution to give amnesty to approximately five million illegal immigrants, five million. And how about all of the millions that are waiting online going through the process legally? So unfair. So Donald Trump said that way back in September. Now, here's what happened yesterday. Sean Spicer came out and he said, this is not a top priority. He said, we're not going to get rid of these executive amnesties. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to leave them in place. We're going to make sure that we pass some legislation that fixes the whole thing, but we're basically going to leave them in place. That was not his pitch during the campaign. And here is the problem. What this now creates is more of a magnet to drive people north of the border, which is what Trump contended during the entire campaign. Mark Krikorian, who's a big Trump advocate and he's at the Center for Immigration Studies, his big piece up in National Review today, talking about the fact that this is actually a big walk back by Trump. This is Mark Krikorian. Politicians will always disappoint you. Rich tells the story of how during the few hours he was considering a run for New York City mayor, he found himself already starting to waffle on principle to a potential voter in the elevator. If I were ever so unwise as to run for office, I too would no doubt disappoint those who unwisely voted for me. I was fully prepared for the Trump administration to do some things I wouldn't be happy with. But I expected the problems to arise in the area of foreign worker visas. The president, while running for the nomination, made lots of statements about that. What I did not expect was for Trump to break an explicit promise regarding his headline issue on the administration's first business day in office, but that may be what's happened. And then he quotes exactly what we just showed. He said, immediately terminating the program wouldn't necessarily have required an executive order, nor would it require rounding up and deporting DACAs. ICE has enough to do already, but... ICE, right, the Citizenship and Immigration Services, which handles the two-year renewable amnesty program, could easily have stopped, uh, stopped processing DACA applications, both for renewals and first-time applicants, until further notice. But that has not happened. Instead, USCIS said we are still accepting and processing DACA requests under existing policy. So the way DACA works is you send a paper into the government, you say, I'm here illegally, and now action on you is deferred. Trump could have paused that program. He's not. Right now, there are 800 illegal aliens receiving work permits during the first business day of the Trump administration. And despite the fact that suspending the DACA program would simply require a memo to the USCIS, it's at least possible that this is a snafu. There wasn't that much of a campaign infrastructure. There's time to do this still. Or it could be, or it could be that Reince Priebus and company 
were able to convince Donald Trump that it's politically unpopular to get rid of DACA and to target the quote-unquote dreamers, and so Trump is leaving that in place. So that is bad Trump. Uh, that is not a good thing. Other stuff that is bad Trump. So you remember that Donald Trump promised, and he's been promising for weeks, that they were going to move the Israeli embassy, the embassy in Israel, to Jerusalem. Here is Sean Spicer yesterday doing his press conference, basically suggesting that this is not going to happen. I, we are at the early stages in this decision-making process. It's not whether, it's when and how. I, I, there's a reason you go through a decision-making process, and that's what we're in the process of starting right now. Okay, so when they say they're at the beginning of the decision-making process, there's no decision-making process. You either do it or you don't. He promised he was going to do it. He's not doing it. That is a walk back. So that's, that's other bad Trump. I think the biggest bad Trump is something that is very controversial among Republicans, and that is this free trade stuff. So as you know, I'm an ardent advocate of free trade, basically because free trade makes people on both sides of the trade better off. Now, there may be people who are disadvantaged by free trade, namely the people who are not competitive in a global market. And those are the people that Trump is pandering to. So yesterday, Donald Trump issues, he writes a memo, basically saying that he's going to revoke TPP, right? He signed an order withdrawing the United States from TPP, and he said that this order was dedicated to the working man, right? This is, this is the way that, that he phrased this. It was dedicated to the working man, and this is part of his broader anti-free trade, anti-capitalism. Free trade is just part of capitalism, folks. If you don't believe that free trade is part of capitalism, I suggest that you boycott every business with which you actually do business because you want to make yourself richer. It's not going to work. Right? Donald Trump told business leaders today that they have to make their products here or suffer a big border taxes. Clip 15, if we can play that. The one thing I do have to warn you about, when you have a company here, you have a plant here, it's going to be in Indiana, or it's in Ohio, or it's in Michigan, or it's in North Carolina, or Pennsylvania. So you have 50 great, wonderful governors to negotiate with. So it's not like we're taking away competition. But if you go to another country and you decide that you're going to close and get rid of 2,000 people or 5,000 people, uh, I tell you, United Technologies was a, an example with Carrier, and I got involved you know, two years after they announced. So, in all fairness, uh, that was tough, but uh, United Technologies was terrific, and they brought back many of those jobs. But and TPP, and he wants to kill TPP. Now, I've said that TPP should be renegotiated because Obama negotiated the thing, and Obama had all sorts of secret clauses, apparently, that contained a bunch of provisions that Americans don't like. It should be subject to Senate approval. It shouldn't be the sort of situation where the president just gets to go sign a big trade treaty. The Senate should have to actually approve it. I believe in how the Constitution was meant to work. Those are procedural and content aspects of the TPP I don't like. Trump is just pulling us out. Here is why this is silly. What this ends up doing, China was not a party to the TPP. Trump says we're in competition with China. Trade makes the people who are involved in trade better off. So instead of us now having a big regional trading block in the, in the Pacific, now China is stepping in and China is now trying to create a reverse TPP with all of the countries that we are trying to create a free trade agreement with. So we killed our own free trade agreement in favor of bilateral trade agreements, which are harder to negotiate and organize in certain ways and don't create these, these vast free trading swaths. Instead, now we have to negotiate with Philippines, and now we have to negotiate with Korea, and now we have to negotiate with each one of these places bilaterally. They have less interest in doing that than they would in being able to have access to 10 markets, just having access to one market. China is extremely happy today. Really, you look at what the Chinese newspapers are saying, and they are ecstatic about Donald Trump getting rid of TPP. The other group of people who are ecstatic about Donald Trump getting rid of TPP with no plan to replace it, really, the other group of people are union leaders. 
Now, I'm old enough to remember when Republicans were skeptical of union leaders like Richard Trumka and the people at the UAW and all these various unions that had signed bad union contracts and helped bankrupt American business. I'm old enough to remember when that was a problem. But now these union folks are coming out and praising Trump to the skies and the Republicans are saying, yeah, that's great. Now the unions are on our side. Well, the question is, what did you have to give up to get the unions on your side? What you had to give up was the American consumer. What you had to give up was some points of growth in the American economy. What you had to do was sacrifice certain interests to the interests of the unions. So now we're pandering to unions in the same way that Democrats pander to unions. Democrats pander to unions by using the National Labor Relations Board in order to cram down bad deals on companies. And Republicans pander to unions with massive tariffs and with anti-trade regulations that allow unions to make a buck off the American taxpayer without actually creating a better product. Here's the union leaders out there yesterday praising Trump. Three million of our members in the United States was nothing short of incredible. And we will work with him and his administration to help him implement his plans on infrastructure, trade, and energy policy so that we really do put America back to work in the middle class jobs that our members and all Americans are demanding. Thank you very much. And our people are saying, yeah, win, 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 because all the union leaders are on our side. Yeah, except for the fact that these union leaders are what made American business non-competitive in the first place in many ways, which is leading to these tariffs, which are impoverishing American consumers. You want to know why Carrier shifted jobs down south? It was because of bad union contracts. It wasn't because of global competition as much as it was because of those bad union contracts. Trump is helping out those unions, but he's not helping out the American consumers. I know there are a lot of people on our side who care more about winning than they do about you know basic principles. But the fact is that winning requires you to win on behalf of a principle. So I'm not sure what principle it is that, that Trump is standing for on this one. Again, the reason that it's good Trump, bad Trump is because he's doing some good stuff and he's doing some bad stuff. This is just a thing he's doing that is shifting the Republican Party and the nature of it. We'll talk more about the shift in the Republican Party and the nature of the Republican Party. We have to, we have to quit Facebook right now. I just can't quit you, but I can, we have to quit Facebook, unfortunately. Go over to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. Eight bucks a month. Annual subscribers still get a free signed copy of my book, True Allegiance. And I have another book that's going to be coming out pretty soon uh, that, that is going to be available for a discount for subscribers, dailywire.com to check it out. Plus, be part of the mailbag in a couple of days, and you can send your emails in now to be part of the mailbag. You can watch the rest of the show live, and, and we're starting a Shapiro store anytime now, so all those goodies will be available. Dailywire.com to join the most popular conservative podcast in America. So one of the things that I was, was very wary of before Donald Trump's election was the idea that the Republican Party was going to be co-opted by this this economic nationalist, which is really just protectionist corporatism routine, and that the Republican Party would basically become a far-right European party. And that seems to be what's happening. Most Republicans are going along with this because they look at good Trump, bad Trump, and they say, okay, more good than bad, which is true. And so now we are going to go along with the bad in order to preserve the good. Well, there's one problem with that, folks, which is that you don't have to do that, right? We can push Trump on the stuff he's doing wrong. But Republicans seem completely unwilling to do that. They seem completely unwilling to fight back when, when Trump does silly things. And again, I will praise him to the sky when he does good things. Yesterday, there was a rumor that he's looking at a judge named uh, Gorsuch on the 10th Circuit for the Supreme Court. Great pick. Gorsuch would be great. I mean, I've looked at his, his, his judicial record. That would be great. And I hope that, that Mitch McConnell rams that guy through. It's really up more to McConnell than it is up to Trump. When Trump does good things, I will be ecstatic to praise him. When he does bad things, I think that it's necessary we point that out. So 
if I have to grade Trump on his first day in office, I give him a B, maybe a B plus. Okay, this is better than I thought it would be. And there's some stuff that I don't like. I think that it's indicative of a move in the Republican Party that I don't like very much, which is fibbing to the American people about economics and pushing an agenda that Bernie Sanders and the unions like. Really, Bernie Sanders was celebrating Trump yesterday over the TPP anti-free trade stuff. But again, I think so far, so you know, pretty good for, for Donald Trump. Now, that's not the way that this is being portrayed in the press. In the press, it's all chaos in Trump land. Now, I don't think the American people care about this. You know, people in the political sphere, we kind of like the gossip of it. We like the fact that is there tension between Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway? Is there is there a lot of is there a lot of anger at Sean Spicer for his press conference, or is Trump really still angry about the the vote? And yes, it's fascinating to watch the fact that Trump, who is a petty narcissist, uh, continues to be a petty narcissist. There was a report yesterday that he met with Congress and he was still maintaining to them that three point three and a, three million to five million illegal votes took place in the last election cycle. And that's why he lost the popular vote, to which the answer should be, who cares? Donald, you're president. For God's sake, focus. And when you're doing stuff so far, so good. When you're saying stuff, it's, a, it's like a lochen cup, like, well, it's a hole in the head. What's 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 the point of all of this? So the press is focusing in, obviously, on the sort of chaos inside the administration, but it's not going to be successful. And one of the reasons it's not going to be successful is because the press can only be successful in targeting a Republican by making that Republican the enemy of the people. By making that Republican, the the press has to demonstrate that it is a representative of the American public, that it's not acting on its own behalf, that it's not chiefly focused with its own honor. Because if it turns into a fight between Trump and the press, the press loses every time. The press is wildly unpopular. The press lie on a routine basis. They mislead on a routine basis. So if they turn every fight, every lie that Trump tells or his team tells into an issue between Trump and the press, as opposed to an issue between Trump and the American people, then we've got a problem. Then we've got an actual problem if you're the press and you're trying to get Donald Trump, then they, they're, they're, they're not going to succeed. The fact is, the only reason the American people care about what Trump says is if he's lying to them, not if he's lying to the press. And so when the press gets very hot and bothered about Sean Spicer getting up there and fibbing repeatedly about the crowd size at the inaugural, instead of asking the real question, which is what Chuck Todd, I think, rightly asked Kellyanne Conway, which was, why is the president being such a petty narcissist, who cares? Why is he making a big deal out of this? Why is he deploying his press secretary to do this? Doesn't, say, doesn't it say something about the character of the guy running the country? That seems to me an appropriate question. Instead, what the media are doing is they're saying, how dare they lie to us? How dare Trump and his team lie to us? Now, do you think the guy in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Ohio deeply cares that anyone lied to Jonathan Carl at ABC News? Do you think that guy who's hurting in the pocketbook, you think he's sitting around going, Oh, well, you know, that, that last press conference, they were real mean to the press. Does anyone think that? Yesterday, Sean Spicer held his second press conference. This one, he actually took questions. The first question he gave to the New York Post. Now, normally, the first press conference goes, it goes to the AP. It goes to the Associated Press. It went to the New York Post instead. And people like Mike Grinbaum at, at the New York Times, who I've met, seems like a nice guy, he tweeted out that this was just insane. How could they possibly not go to the AP? Do you think anyone, a swing voter in, in rural Pennsylvania, gives two good craps about whether AP or the New York Post got the first question? You think anyone cares about that? Of course not. But the media, because they're so self-centered, they are more concerned with Trump lying to them than they are if Trump lies to the American people, which also, by the way, demonstrates why they were willing to go along with Barack Obama's lies. Because the fact is, 
that Barack Obama lied to the American people repeatedly. Josh Ernest and Jay Carney and Marie, and Marie Harf and, and Jen Pfeiffer, they all, they, Jen Psaki rather, they all lied to the American people routinely. But the press didn't care. Why? Because the press felt like, well, they're not lying to us, right? We, we kind of have a wink, wink, nod, nod relationship with Obama. And that means, yeah, we sort of know they're lying, but they know we know they're lying and we're willing to pass that on. Okay, whatever. You know, they, we know they have good in their hearts. We know they have good in their hearts. And this is why I don't think it's completely unfair when the Trump team says, listen, you gave Obama the benefit of the doubt. Why don't you give us the benefit of the doubt? Now, the truth is they shouldn't have given either administration the benefit of the doubt. But because the press is all about the press and not about the American people, their popularity among the American people is waning. And it also means that Trump's going to be able to get away with a lot more by attacking the press than he normally would if the press just kept asking the question, why are you lying to the American people rather than why are you lying to us? So here's an example. Jake Tapper at CNN, who I like a lot. I think Jake Tapper is a very good reporter. Uh, he is the most objective reporter in cable news outside of maybe Brett Baer. And, uh, and Jake Tapper, uh, he led off yesterday by mocking Sean Spicer, who's the press secretary for Trump, because Sean Spicer and uh, Kellyanne Conway, they'd said that they were presenting alternative facts, which is asinine. So here is Tapper mocking them. Thanks, Brooke. A lot of talk by the Trump team of alternate facts this weekend. Here's an alternate fact. I'm Wolf Blitzer, and you're in the Situation Room. The lead starts right now. Bit, right? I mean, the, the alternative, the idea is the alternative fact, the alternative fact uh, is a lie. But the problem is it looks here, I mean, if you just saw this, what you'd imagine is that Jake Tapper is getting snarky, not on behalf of the American people, but on behalf of the media, that the press are really upset about this. Here's Jonathan Carl asking Sean Spicer a question yesterday. Look how it's phrased. Is it your intention to always tell the truth from that podium? And will you pledge never to knowingly say something that is not factual? It is. It's an honor to do this, and uh, yes, I believe that we have to be honest with the American people. I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. There are certain things that um, we may miss, we may not fully understand when we come out, but our intention is never to lie to you, Jonathan. Um, our job is to make sure that sometimes, and you're in the same boat. I mean, there are times when you guys tweet something out or write a story and you publish a correction. That doesn't mean that you were intentionally trying to deceive readers and okay, the American we'll people, right does there. it? So what, a couple of things to point out here. One is Spicer, unconsciously, because this is the way the question is phrased, immediately turns it into, the question is not, will you always tell the truth to the American people? The question is, will you always tell the truth to the press? And then he says, well, it's not our intention to lie to you. So now it's a press versus Trump issue. Nobody cares about the press. Nobody cares if you lie to the press. People care if you lie to them. People care if you lie to the American people. And unless the press can set themselves up as a proxy for the American people, they are going to fail in this fight. Second, I, I do have to point out the mild hypocrisy here. Sean Spicer says, you know, we want to be given the benefit of the doubt when we make a mistake. You, we'll try to give you the benefit of the doubt when you make a mistake. That's not accurate. Zeke Miller in the New York Times uh, tweeted out that thing about MLK's bust not being in the Oval Office, and then he corrected it pretty quickly. And, and the Trump team has just been going to town on that, which is fine. I mean, they can go to town on it, but let's not pretend that everybody is, is being given the benefit of the doubt on all of this because they're not. The media have also trotted out people like Dan Rather to critique this. Okay, Dan Rather lied to the American people in 2004 when he put out a bunch of false information about George W. Bush being AWOL while he was in the Air National Guard, and now he's the voice of truth? He's the voice of truth? You wonder why people don't trust the media? This is why. Listen, 
we we cannot we simply cannot i don't mean journalists i don't mean the white house per se none of us can go into this world of alternative facts listen two plus two equals four that's a fact there's no alternative to it water runs downhill that's a fact it snows in alaska there's sand dunes in saudi arabia these are facts this idea of alternative facts this is a propaganda tool and look yeah. you and i know that miss conway is a very smart lady and she didn't just offhandedly say this. They've made this point before. I don't think that even most of the very um, uh, Trump supporters who really believe in him want us to deal in a world of alternative facts. You can't Fact have Dan Rather out there promoting truth. He is not your spokesperson. It's like having Brian Williams go out there and talk about how there's no such thing as alternative facts. Yes, I fought in World War II. No, 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 no. And and because the press is so bad at this, because the press keep they, they portray themselves as an elite, because the press see themselves as a different sort of clique with special rights, that allows people to demagogue the issue. It allows people to turn the issue not into, is the Trump team fibbing to the American people, but this is just a battle between Trump and the press, right? This is what Bill O'Reilly did yesterday. He says that the, the press is just going to war with Trump. Many in the media had a vested interest in seeing President Obama succeed. And those same exact people have a vested interest in seeing Donald Trump fail. He knows it, you know it, and I know it. It doesn't the change the fact. That's the, the, okay, that doesn't change the fact on the ground, which is that somebody fibbed, but O'Reilly is right that because this gets posed as a conflict between Trump and the press, Trump is going to win that conflict every time. Now, does this answer all of the questions about Trump's persona? No, I don't think that it does. Okay, so John Spicer yesterday at his press conference, he was asked about why Trump keeps focusing on crowd size and all this. And here was Spicer's answer. And it's a little disquieting to those of us who actually think the president of the United States ought to be stable and not quite so thin skinned. There is this constant theme to undercut the enormous support that he has. And I think it's just unbelievably frustrating when you're continually told it's not big enough, it's not good enough, you can't win. And, and, and hold on, let me just sure. because I, I think it's important. He's gone out there and defied the odds over and over and over again, and he keeps getting told what he can't do by this narrative that's out there, and he exceeds it every single time. And I think there's an overall frustration when you open, when you turn on the television over and over again and get told that there's this narrative that you didn't win, you weren't going to run, you can't pick up this state. That's not, you know, that that's a fool's errand to go to Pennsylvania. Why is he in Michigan? How silly. They'll never vote for him. A Republican hasn't won that state since Can 88. Pause this? And okay. then he so, wah, wah. Somebody called the ambulance. He's the president of the damn United States. I mean, I'm sorry, but this is now insecurity in search of a rationale. There's no reason to be insecure when you were just elected president of the United States. I, if you would imagine an ego boost, that seems to me like that'd be a pretty massive ego boost, wouldn't it? That you win president of the United States. If you're looking to shore up your insecurities in life, being elected president should do it. But what you see here is that there's this pathological insecurity, and that's something that's troubling. That's something that's a problem. And that's what the press, if they actually cared about truth, that's what they should be asking about is why does Trump care about any of this? You know, why isn't he focusing in on the issues? And thank God it looks like when, when Trump comes to policy, maybe he is starting to focus in on the issues. But it's going to be, I think, a constant battle between Trump's ego and between his policymaking to see where this administration goes. And if he's this insecure this early, if he's this insecure right after being elected president and he's in his honeymoon period, that does not bode particularly well for the future. Okay, 
Time for some stuff I like and then some stuff I hate, and then we'll deconstruct a little bit of culture. So, things I like. So I've been doing, because the press is so all-fired eager to declare that we're on the verge of dictatorship, I've been reading actual biographies of dictators. So this is a biography of Franco. So General Franco was the dictator of Spain. What's amazing is that people don't know anything about Franco. Franco's sort of the great unnamed dictator of the 20th century. Franco was the dictator of Spain from 1935 to 1976. Okay, you understand that Spain only became a constitutional democracy in 1978. That's when they actually had a constitution. So when we talk about the idea that democracy is fragile, that republics are fragile, they really are. I mean, they really are. A lot of democracies fall into despotism pretty easily. Franco was, was more of a, a weak dictator than a, lot of other, than a lot of other dictators. He wasn't genociding people as a general rule. He was imprisoning dissidents, but... But the fact is that right there in the heart of Europe, you had a dictator who ruled for 40 years in the middle of Europe and nobody seemed to care, which again demonstrates that the truth is the public isn't all that averse to dictate. This is one of the sad truths that I think we're, we're figuring out in America just generally. And this is not about Trump. This is just the general American mindset, which I'll discuss in one second. The general American mindset is the dictatorship ain't so bad so long as the dictator's your guy. And that's true of Franco, too. So if, if Franco was your guy, then he was great. If Mussolini was your guy, then he was great. The only dictators that we can all agree were bad, apparently, were Hitler and Stalin. But everybody else is up for debate, which is pretty amazing, considering that the West is based on the idea of no consent, without, no representation without consent. Uh, it's, a, it's a long book, but it's a very well-done book. Paul Preston's Franco, uh, well worth reading. Uh, you know, as it, this brings me to a, uh, this brings me to, uh, a, you know, I think we have a couple of other things I like, and then I want to come back to that theme uh, in a second. But first, a couple of other things that I like. So my friend Stephen Crowder, who is absolutely a nutcase, uh, he went to the Women's March dressed up as a woman, saying he was a transgender woman, and he began asking the participants in the Women's March uh, what exactly they were there to march for. He also had his producer, Not Gay Jarrett, with him. Uh, I don't know how much he pays Jarrett. Whatever it is, it is not enough. Um, but here is, uh, here's Crowder and Nake Jarrett asking participants in the Women's March what exactly they were marching for. But as far as right. policy, what should we all be most concerned about with this march with Donald Trump and uh, this administration? Uh, to you. To you. To me. Like the rights. Specifically to your community or in general? You know, I think personally the in the imminent challenges that are kind of uh, like projected or forecasted for the country as overall like oh my gosh well can i think that the biggest concern for me is just this market. idea that this administration has a right to tell any of us what we can do with our bodies right what we can wear on our bodies right what we can uh, say about our bodies right Okay. And, and that so is if they seem mildly confused, folks, that's because they don't know actually why they're there. They're just there to yell. It's just a primal rage scream. So good for, good for Crowder for exposing that. Other things that I like, uh, they, they now have, in, uh, this is very funny, uh, all credit to Mathis for, for uncovering this, um, but he, he has uncovered, somebody did a trailer version of The Office starring all the members of the Trump administration, and it is very funny. Trump for people who can't actually watch. This is why you have to subscribe. And there's Mike Pence looking all awkward. And there's Paul Ryan.
illegal attacking Donald Trump. The Office, Donald Trump edition. So very cute, uh, very very funny. Uh, okay, final thing that final thing that I like. Uh, a woman yelled at a Trump supporter, and she was kicked off a plane. And we have tape of it. And so this is pretty glorious. She has called me names and insulted me just for sitting down in the seat saying that I came here to celebrate today. Is there going to be a problem? Yeah, I would like for him to change seats with someone. No, we're not. I'm going to get somebody. Well, you don't have that right. So I will get somebody to come and talk. You pretend you have the moral high ground, but you put that man's finger on the meat on your butt. And then there she is being taken off the plane as well. She should. You're not supposed to abuse other people on the plane for their political views. I don't know if this has become a lefty thing. Remember there's that guy who, who ran after Ivanka Trump and then abused her on a plane? I wasn't aware that this is now a new thing, that you just get to go on planes and abuse people over it. R- really ridiculous. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Let's do it. Okay, so here is... Uh, Here's something that I hate, and I want to mention this going back to the, the theme that most Americans seem okay with the idea uh, of a government that is overweening so long as it's quote-unquote on their side. And Kellyanne Conway did an interview, I think it was with Hannity last night, and uh, she had this, this comment, and I, I, I'm not sure that she meant it totally, but, but it's, it's evocative and, and demonstrative nonetheless. Here is, here's the actual comment uh, that, that she made yesterday about the relationship between the press and, uh, and the Trump administration. I think we have to have a free and open press. What I say about it is that this White House and the media are going to share joint custody of this nation for eight years. And we ought to be able to figure out how to co-parent and mutually co-exist. I know there's these new age terms I hear. Okay, no, you don't. Okay, no, you don't. I'm sorry, you're not my mother. You don't have custody of me. You don't have custody of the nation. You don't have custody of anything. Okay. Donald Trump has not been given custody of the American people. Donald Trump is president of the United States. He now has a job to do, and that is to fulfill his constitutional duty. But this vision of people in government, this is not a conservative vision. And maybe this just slips out from Kellyanne Conway. The idea that the press has custody and that Trump has custody and they have to have joint custody and work together, that's not what any of these people are supposed to be doing. Okay, the Constitution of the United States does not say the president has custody of the United States, the legislature has custody of the United States. That is not at all what is supposed to be happening here. They don't have custody of you. You appointed them as president of the United States and his team in order to protect your rights. It's not the other way around. Okay, they don't have control over you. They don't have custody over you. That is not the way this works. It's ridiculous. And to suggest that the, the relationship between the press and the Trump administration is supposed to be, you know, this joint custody relationship. No, the goal of the, 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 goal of the, of the press is to expose the, the nature of government so that we are all aware that the people who are empowered with all this power are not abusing that power. I don't want a joint custody arrangement. We had a joint custody arrangement between Obama and the media, and it was horrible because Obama thought he was daddy. And now we have a whole other group of people in the Republican Party who think Trump is daddy. Trump ain't my daddy. He ain't your daddy. He's nobody's daddy except for Ivanka's and the kids. He is not your father. He is not your custodian. 
And the press does not get to have joint custody. It's just, it's ridiculous all the way through. This sort of language really angers me uh, because, again, it demonstrates that too many Americans think of the government as their caretaker rather than as the protector of their rights. Their only reason the government exists is to protect your rights. That is all. That is it. That is everything. Okay, other things that I hate. So the, uh, an alt-right leader named Richard Spencer, who is an actual neo-Nazi type, he talks about supremacy of, of white people. He got punched in the face. Uh, and, uh, and so he was, he was standing on the street talking, wearing his bizarre haircut, and, uh, and you'll see, somebody comes along and just smacks him. We've entered this new world where the leftist protesters... No, I'm not a neo-Nazi. You like black people? Well, why do you hate me? Neo-Nazis don't love me. They kind of hate me, actually. They, those people don't like me, Are you like the hipster version of the neo-Nazi movement? It's Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Becomes some dude to punch him in the face. Now, a lot of people on the left and even some people on the right were saying, oh, he deserves it. He deserves it. He has it coming, being punched in the face. That is wrong. That is not how discourse works. What's amazing is how few people on the left seem to understand these days, and a lot of people on the right also, but just generally, a lot of people on the left, because when I speak on college campuses, you actually get violence breaking out. I know uh, Yiannopoulos just spoke at University of Wisconsin and viol- or uh, University of Washington, and, and violence broke out there. When he put out his book, a bunch of people said they should boycott the book and burn the book and all this stuff. All you're doing is actually granting him credibility. That's all you're doing. When Richard Spencer gets hit in the face, all he can do is say, look, I'm speaking such truths that they have to physically harm me. And that's his shtick. It's his shtick. So forget about Richard Spencer and his rights for a second. If you actually want to stop Richard Spencer, the stupidest thing you can do is punch him in the face. It's really dumb. It turns him into a victim. And then you get to the actual morality of this. No, you don't get to punch people in the face just because of their political views. The idea of civilization is we can have disagreements about politics and still understand that violence is not the right solution here. There is such a thing as a government official monopoly on, on violence. You know, the idea that the, the police can arrest you if you violate the law, but I don't get to punch you just because I don't like what you're saying. It doesn't mean I don't understand the feelings, but it does mean that you don't get to punch people. It was one of the objections I had to Trump when he was saying, if you punch somebody in the crowd who's, who's about to throw a tomato, then I'll pay your legal bills. Violence in the pursuit of politics is the beginning of fascism from all sides. And yet it seems like everybody is apparently ready for that. Okay, time for a quick deconstructing the culture. We'll make it real snappy. So this week on Deconstructing the Culture, instead of actually doing a song, I want to talk about a piece from Amy Zimmerman. Amy Zimmerman has now written a piece about Taylor Swift, who you see here uh, in the Deconstructing the Culture graphic. Uh, She's written this piece about Taylor Swift's spineless feminism. What did Taylor Swift do that really angered Amy Zimmerman over at the Daily Beast? The pop superstar endorsed the Women's March in a simple tweet, but after staying remarkably silent during the election, many saw it as opportunism and far too little, far too late. So she didn't show up to this idiot women's march uh, with, this, with Ashley Judd and Lena Dunham and Madonna all screaming about their vajayjays. Instead of doing that, she just sent out a tweet, and her tweet basically just said that she was proud of the people who were marching. It said, so much love, pride, and respect for those who march. I'm proud to be a woman today and every day. Hashtag women's march. Okay, pretty bland, right? Pretty bland stuff. But this, according to Amy Zimmerman, makes her a villainous. She's a bad person. Why? Because she didn't use the power of her celebrity in order to cram down radical political views about vaginas and their inherent values as, as making you a complete human being. 
the piece itself is totally crazy. It says, with all of the pink posturing on display last weekend, conversation naturally turned toward Taylor Swift, our nation's most opportunistic celebrity. Taylor has an unrivaled ability to read the room and seize a moment. But strangely enough, Swift has no interest in leaning in to her true potential. Instead, she's resolutely tried to preserve her public image as the sweet romantic girl next door. Question. Why does Amy Zimmerman, I thought that this idea of the Women's March was female autonomy, why does she get to determine what Swift's true potential is? I didn't realize that Taylor Swift's true potential was being a public politician. It turned out that her true potential was in making overrated pop songs. That that was her true potential. And she's fulfilled that. She has 82.3 million Twitter followers, and she's one of the richest people on planet Earth. So she's done fine in maximizing her true potential, but the left worship celebrity to the extent that they think that if you are a celebrity, you should therefore be a leader, and if you abdicate political leadership, therefore you are a member of the bad guys. You're a member of the bad guys. This is a pretty amazing statement. This is what Zimmerman writes. As a pretty white girl who has written songs that rely heavily on fiddles, Swift undoubtedly counts a healthy handful of Trump supporters among her fan base. Right, that's like 50% of the country. Taylor Swift has always valued apoliticism, even to a fault. Her girl squad has been infamously silent on social issues. There's a craven calculus to winning brownie points without offending your most offensive fans. Cutesy sentiments and political palatability are no longer acceptable. If you're not overtly on board with the resistance, you're tacitly chill with being proclaimed an Aryan goddess. Trying or pretending to be woke without displaying any sort of political preference or informed opinion is almost more offensive than saying nothing at all. Almost more offensive, but if she'd said nothing, then you would have bitched about it, wouldn't you? So the idea is that if you don't overtly endorse the Women's March, you are therefore an enemy of women everywhere, and you're on board with not just Donald Trump, but Donald Trump's most extreme supporters, the peppy people who think that she's an Aryan goddess. And this is the routine that that a lot of these online trolls have been pushing. What utter stupidity, what ideological fascism. Taylor Swift is a fully autonomous woman. She can do whatever she wants with her politics. I don't have to like her music to understand that she has the same rights that Amy Zimmerman does on her politics. And the idea that you are going to browbeat her because she is famous for playing songs on a guitar into endorsing your stupid march is just demonstrative of how radical the left has become and how polarized they have made politics. It's ideological fascism in action. The idea... That if you don't fall in with Lena Dunham, you're in, league, you're in league with Richard Spencer, is just pure idiocy and it's demagoguery of the highest sort. Look what you've made me do, leftists. Defend Taylor Swift, damn you. Well, we'll be back tomorrow, talk about more of this, and uh, we'll see what President Trump has in store for today. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.